It's go time. James Butler has a game that everyone will point to. The Rough Riders use 20 seconds to finally handle the Tiger Cats. Calgary and Montreal go toe-to-toe, and finally a winner is decided on the last play of the game. Ottawa, did they shock Winnipeg? We'll find out. But the sad thing is, quarterbacks, they be hurting after week one. Welcome to Third Down Gamble. I'm Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. Heath, it was a tough opening weekend for quarterbacks, not on the stats side, but on the health side. It was, and there's a little bit of controversy already with the eye above and whether they made the right call on a couple of hits to the quarterbacks and should more quarterbacks have been pulled out for three plays. The question mark comes to the hit on Cody Fajardo in the second quarter of the game in Regina. Hamilton Tiger Cats linebacker Simone Lawrence clocks him from behind. Fajardo is visibly shaken up on the play, but he does not reach for his helmet, gets up, works his way back to the huddle, bends over, kind of stretches out his back, and then gets back into the play, and they let it go. On Thursday night, with the Red Blacks in Winnipeg, Zach Kolaris is bursting through the line. He gets tackled, but Randall Evans unloads his shoulder roughly to the shoulder, maybe to the neck, maybe to the helmet of Kolaris. Kolaris's helmet sort of bounces around as he hits the ground, and he sits there a little bit stunned for a few seconds, readjusts the helmet, gets up, goes back to the huddle, kind of looks like he's shaking it off, and the eye in the sky says, we've seen enough, you're coming out. Is there a discrepancy between the two situations? Likely. Did they err in one and get it right in the other? Hindsight's twenty twenty. As a Blue Bombers fan, I would not want to lose Zach Kolaris for the season this early in the year. We saw what happened with him in Saskatchewan when he got knocked out of a game in the first couple of snaps. I believe the league made the right call in this case and did the right thing by getting Kolaris out for three plays. Uh, It ended up being more than three plays. The Bombers did what they had to do and won the game. He was visibly shaken. He was stunned after that hit. And as far as the hit itself goes, I was okay with no flag on the play. I would have been okay if there was a flag on the play. It was one of those situations where it happened very fast and there was no wrong call in my opinion and the right call was to pull Kolaris out of the game. I will beg to differ on one part of your assumption or assertion, but I will agree with you on the other. The call from the folks back in the booth, yes, correct. That had to be done because he looked a little bit shaken up. The no call on the play in terms of a penalty, disagree. Why? When a defender coils his back, basically drops his shoulders and his head to make contact, That isn't about tackling, that's about impacting with force. Randall Evans and Simone Lawrence both did the exact same thing. They went down, they could tell, there's no way you can't tell, that that player was going down and they were going to try to hit him as hard as they could. It deserved a penalty. Now, he didn't get even a subsequent fine, did Randall Evans for this, although Simone Lawrence, who did get penalized 15 on the play, did get a consequent fine as a result. Now, I don't know if that's from 
persistence or if that was just something directly associated with that play. What it boils down to is if the league is serious about protecting the quarterbacks and protecting the star players, you're absolutely right. There should have been a 15-yard penalty assessed to Randall Evans on the hit on Kolaris as well. I believe that Simone Lawrence's reputation precedes him as well, so he did not get the benefit of the doubt, was flagged and subsequently fined for the hit on Fajardo. Now, Cody Fajardo, as you said, did bounce up, but the rule of of how they're determining these injuries and these risks, to me, he probably should have sat for three plays as well. I agree wholeheartedly. That the booth did not pull him from the field, that's something that they'll have to reassess and determine how they're going to go from this day forward. Fajardo needed to be out of the game because he was hurting. Was it his head, i.e. a concussion issue? I don't think so, but it could have been his spine or his neck. And of consequence, they are both of a high magnitude. If he's fine, you've got three plays to take him over, have the assessment made. If he does not have any sort of other complications from it, i.e. he can't twist, there's swelling, there's intense pain, then yeah, you can, you've got medical people there that are quite capable of making a proper assessment. But if you don't give them the opportunity. There's a lot to review for the league in both of these situations. And I'm looking forward to them really dissecting it from the perspective of the officials and of the medical staff, what they are looking for, the reasons behind why this one was right, this one was wrong. They have kind of come out and addressed that given the way things are written, Cody Fajardo should have likely been pulled for those three plays as well as a precaution. So they they have taken some ownership of that as a league Moving forward, I believe they will continue to improve on this process, be more consistent. We have to remember that these people are people. They are not machines, and that includes the people that are on the field and the people that are up in the booth. They have to make judgment calls. They're probably quickly discussing this back and forth. Do we, don't we, what do you see? Have you seen anything? How how impactful is it? Can you tell? Do we have a good camera shot of this? And there's a lot of sort of factors that go into any sort of decision. And of course, one of the ones that weighs in their mind is that this impacts the game. They don't want to do it unnecessarily because if a team then gets hampered by the fact that they've lost said quarterback, the booth gets the the wrath because what are you doing? Now in Saskatchewan's case, second quarter, less of an issue, if especially if Fajardo was cleared and he's immediately allowed to come back. But if he's not cleared, then they've made the right decision to get him off the field, except they didn't. In Winnipeg's case, it worked out that Calaris did not, uh, his, his absence did not impact the game completely because the backup quarterback managed to bring them down the field. Situationally, it certainly could have. You've got a team driving the field in the last minutes of the game to try to win and all of a sudden the overhead eye in the sky decides that that quarterback's coming out it was a very bold decision by the cfl and and the right one but to make that call in that situation has to be tough moving away from claris we know we feel that they've got that right why randall evans wasn't further sanctioned i don't quite understand 
the CFL has their sort of guidelines. They may tighten them as this goes on. But going back to the situation with Simone Lawrence. Now, I know if you're a Tiger Cats fan, you're going to defend and say he didn't mean to do anything and everything like that. Intent is part of it. Outcome is the other part of anything that you do on the field. Whether or not he's got a history, he's had a history with Henry Burris when Henry was with the Ottawa Red Blacks. He's had a history with Zach Calaris. It's not like he shies away from this sort of stuff. He did get fined. He deserves to be fined. And once you get that reputation, it dogs you. Players of Simone Lawrence's caliber don't come around every day. He's a phenomenal player. One of the best defenders in the league. I don't want to see a player completely handcuffed and, and lose what makes them truly great. However, if the results are time and again, quarterbacks being injured, running backs being injured, the league needs some teeth here. Yes, they did issue a fine. Do they need to look at suspension? This is the thing I think that they could have done in the CBA. They've got the after-whistle, objectionable conduct, rough play calls that they can make that can extricate a player from the field. But they don't really have anything that I know on an ascending scale where a player fined for a hit on three weeks later, does it to another player. What do you do? Do you get to a threshold where at this point now you have to be benched? Player safety and player discipline is always a big question mark in leagues. And and we don't always get the inside information as to what they were looking for. There needs to be more consistency and more transparency in this decision-making. I would love to see something laid out where if you are flagged with rough play X number of times, this is the result. It seems like they're just kind of picking and choosing right now. And as I mentioned, Simone Lawrence's reputation precedes him on this. We know he's had a a past history of suspension and fine. The league went right to that route of issuing a fine on this one. If you look at something like professional soccer, where they have their, their books of yellow card, red card progression, Perhaps something like that could work in professional football where you've got discipline two, three games down the road if you continue to be flagged for these same kind of penalties. I think that's a fair way to approach it. We don't necessarily need yellow cards and red cards, but if a player picks up two major fouls in a football game, they sit for the next one. If a player has five in a season, they have to sit. Now, it's a short season. It hurts the pocketbook, definitely. But at some point, unless the behavior changes, the outcomes will not. Again, if the league is serious about protecting the star players, it's something that needs to be addressed, and that might be a good way to do it. You start losing those game checks, and you're going to evaluate how you're playing pretty quickly. Second down. first two games of week one were two classic football games. For different reasons, at the end of the game, you were on the edge of your seat, not knowing what the outcome would be. You can't ask much more of a game when you don't know who's going to win until the final play. Absolutely. So game number one to kick off the season was the Montreal Alouettes at the Calgary Stampeders. 
Final score, Calgary 30, Montreal 27. Coming from the foot of Rennie Paradis, another game-winning field goal to secure the win for Calgary. And on the final play of the game, Vernon Adams Jr. heaves the ball 60 yards downfield, and it's a jump ball in the end zone. The Stampeders are able to knock it down, but if Montreal catches it, they win right there. Fantastic finish. Like you said, right down to the wire. We didn't know who was going to win. And a, a big night for a couple of players. Kadeem Carey had a fantastic game with two touchdowns. Bo Levi Mitchell was okay with the start. Not fantastic, but he did enough to win. Bo was 21 of 34 with 199 yards, a TD and an interception. Vernon Adams on the other side, 18 of 32. 250 yards, one TD, but two interceptions. One was on a deflected pass very early in the game that set up Calgary's first score. In fact, of the 138 points scored by teams that won football games on the week, 58 of them came off turnovers. Turnovers matter in a football game. They do. Unfortunately, one of the biggest plays of this game was probably the loss of William Stanback for the Montreal Alouettes. He's on the six-game injured reserve. It appears it may even be longer than that. I know the Alouettes did go out and, and make a trade with Edmonton to pick up another running back here as well. So tough start for one of the most outstanding players in the league last season to be down already in game one. We speak of protecting quarterbacks, but here's a case where we we, we need to really look at protecting players who have the football. Shots below the hips, and this was Trey Roberson who was trying to make the tackle, but Stanback was already engaged. That foot was anchored to the ground, and when Roberson impacted it, something had to give. If there's one other thing that needs to change is you've got to get rid of those types of tackles that aren't arm tackles that involve below the hips and down to the ankles of a running player. More often than not, it's an ankle, a knee, or a break of a leg. Very tough to see, as I said. It's, he, William Sandback is an outstanding running back, very exciting, and had a great season in 2021. And you just hate to see something this severe happen this early. I, I don't know what the solution is, as you suggest, maybe looking at how tackles are made below the waist. Maybe something needs to be done. Unfortunate circumstance right now, and, and one of the stars of the league is on the sidelines here for quite a while. Likely it means a return closer to the rugby roots of North American football. And if you want more scoring, if it's tougher to tackle, there's one way to make it happen. Calgary's Jake Mayer came in after Bo's injury and performed well, led them to the winning score. We will see that again in Winnipeg and Ottawa. The Stampeders defense... Although Montreal would rack up 390 yards of offense. It's reminiscent of what we saw from Winnipeg in 2021, where it was a lot of yards given up and very little points. In this case, they did give up 27 points, granted. But the other part of the game that we can't lose sight of is that the Alouettes were up by 10 in the second half. And Calgary chipped away and chipped away and chipped away until they finally got the lead. And the other big part of this game was that Mike Rose blocked a Cote field goal attempt. Those three points would have changed the dynamic at the end of the game. They weren't on the board for the Alouettes at that time. Second game of the week, another thriller. The 
Blue Bombers prevail over the Red Blacks 1917 on a last-minute field goal. Blue Bombers, of course, losing Dakota Prukup. Zach Kolaris was injured in the game, so it fell upon Drew Brown to be the hero on that final drive. And, and he came in and, and added some excitement. He went three for three, 51 yards, had a little run in there. He, he did fantastic to come in and move the ball and set them up for those winning points. One thing I would like to address that happened in the first half is, I believe, a coaching error by Paul Apolise and the Ottawa Red Blacks. They had time to get into field goal range at the end of the first half, and I think they were trying to sneak in one more play. It didn't work out in their favor, and time ran out. They had a a chip shot field goal for Lewis Ward to extend the lead going into the half, and they failed to capitalize on it, and that ended up costing them at the end of the game. They took far too much time, 10 to 11 seconds, just getting the dive play in to get the first down, and then... They took far too much time setting up to go for the next play. They basically ran two plays in 23 seconds in the final minute of the first half in Winnipeg territory. That is a coaching error. You have to be far more aware of what's going on. And there's this little thing called a timeout that Lapolice could have used to stop the clock to make sure that Lewis Ward, who's Mr. Automatic could have had a chip shot field goal. Yeah, it it absolutely was a coaching error. They did not manage the clock well in that last minute. Now, who knows what could have happened in the second half with those three points on the board. It's always conjecture and, and speculation. But the way that Winnipeg's defense again stepped up in the second half, we see how important those three points on the board could have been. Jeremiah Mazzoli proved that you can attack this Winnipeg defense. He was 24 of 34 for 380 yards and could have improved upon that had Jalen Acklin only caught a deep ball on the opening offensive play for the Red Blacks. If Acklin catches that ball and Ottawa scores in their first play. Paul Apolise said going into this season, we have Jeremiah Mazzoli, we have a chance. And they proved that in week one. There's a lot of confidence in Ottawa with Jeremiah Mazzoli at the helm. We saw them struggle in 2021 and they went out and did what they had to do in the offseason to get competitive and to take the Great Cup champions down to the last minute and force them to kick a game-winning field goal shows you how much improved the Red Blacks are. The one thing that Ottawa did that surprised me more than anything was they made an all-star, Winston Rose, looked very ordinary out there. They picked on him mercilessly. And a lot of it has to do with the hash marks being moved in because of his technique and the way he brackets with the sideline. He likes to have his back to the sideline, keep everything in front of him. Well, receivers were now pressing him to the outside because last year that room wasn't there on the short side. This year it is. I I agree 100%. He really got pushed to the limits and, and was frankly exposed. Ottawa saw something there and kept going to it. And again, he was in that coverage that Jalen Ackland didn't make that catch. Could have been even worse. Would have taken the stuffing out of that crowd. And that's something that we referred to our podcast last week is that if Ottawa was going to win this game, 
there'd be so much pent up energy with the Blue Bombers getting that uh, banner unveiled and of course the video showing them getting their rings that you'd have to do something to to pop that balloon and Ottawa had it. Ackland let it slip through his fingers. He did. I think this also also shows how much Winnipeg is going to miss Brandon Alexander for the first few games of the season as he's recovering from injury. Uh, An all-star safety back there can help make up for a lot of mistakes from your corners and he's not there right now. This could be a bit of a, a problem for Winnipeg moving forward. Now to be fair to Ackland, six receptions for 143 yards. Ottawa against this vaunted Winnipeg defense put up 441 yards of offense, had more possession than Winnipeg did. They beat Winnipeg in every statistical category, but stats are for blank. What matters is on the scoreboard. And Winnipeg was the team that managed to outscore. Mark Lego did well, comes out and goes two for two. He did. He missed one important convert, but he was one for two on those, two for two on field goals, and looked exceptional, exceptional punting the ball. This was one of the best performances I've seen with him punting. He consistently pinned Ottawa inside the 20. So a much improved Mark Leggio is going to be a necessary part for Winnipeg to be successful this year. The rematch, of course, comes in Ottawa. It's kind of ironic that the two teams do not play because of the way the schedule had to work last year. And now they're getting back-to-back this year. 26,002, the attendance in Winnipeg. A very big crowd for opening night. But, of course, the addition of the banner and the enticement of seeing those championship rings, of course, would bring in a few more folks. But there was a lot of energy. There's a lot of excitement that Winnipeg can do it a third time. Ottawa, I think, made a statement that you better check those ideas just a little bit. It's great to see the parody in the league, too. We take one of the worst teams of the last season, and all of a sudden they're pushing the, the Grey Cup winners right to the limit. So I had predicted that Ottawa was going to be much improved and was looking at it as a 9-9 nine and nine team this year. I, I don't know 100% that they'll get there, but they certainly look like they've got a chance. If their defense can perform as well as they did against Winnipeg and keep up that level, the offense will figure it out. If Mazzoli is given time, he has, if anything, he has an extremely accurate throwing arm. He will slice and dice, and he's not afraid to put it down the field. Mazzoli throwing for 380 yards. When was the last time a quarterback did that against Winnipeg? It's been a while. And Darvin Adams came back to Winnipeg with something to prove as well. 71 yards receiving and looked like his old self out there and not not an old Darvin Adams. Seven catches, nine targets, and 71 yards, as I mentioned. Saturday, we had a double header. We're going to be seeing a lot of that actually through the coming weeks. And I kind of like it, the Thursday, Friday, and then two on Saturday. I think that's a nice pattern. The Hamilton Tiger Cats, the team that lost to Winnipeg in overtime in the Grey Cup in 2021, were taking on, in Regina, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, who were the team that lost to Winnipeg in the West Final in Winnipeg in 2021. Both teams had come close to beating Winnipeg, but you got to do it if you want to be it. This one was, I guess you could describe it as a, a snail's race on offense. 
13 two and outs in the first half by the teams. Field goals were the order of the day until finally in the fourth quarter, the offenses break out of their slumber. It was definitely a defensive battle in that first half. Nobody really wanted to take control of the game by by the looks of things. Brett Lothar went 5 for 5 on field goals, his longest from 48 yards, so a great night and a great start to the season for him. It was huge because it kept the Rough Riders in the lead, and then after his fifth field goal, finally we get some offense, and it's it's Stephen Dunbar who flies down the left sideline, defeats Nick Marshall, who happened to be peeking into the backfield just a little too long, and goes the distance for a huge touchdown for the Tiger Cats, and that gets them all of a sudden right back in the game where they were down 15-6. to six. Now it's suddenly 15-13. to 13. One player that really stood out for me for the Tiger Cats, and I, I think he's setting up well to have a great season, is Poppy White. He was targeted four times, made four receptions for 56 yards, and also had one punt return for 20 yards. He looked dangerous out there, and I think if Hamilton can work him more into the offense, it's going to set them up well. Dane Evans was sacked eight times in that football game. He looked like he was under siege, but to be fair, even though Cody Fajardo was not sacked, he was lit up several times after releasing a pass. You've got to admire his resiliency because he took a lot of hellacious hits in that football game. Hamilton did not go easy on him, and he kept staying in the match. And it wasn't until that fourth quarter when Hamilton scored that Saskatchewan finally could respond. After that 75-yard touchdown by Dunbar, the Rough Riders finally respond. I was quite surprised by how many times and how successful the Rough Riders did get to Dane Evans. Offensive line has been a strength of the Tiger Cats over the last several seasons, and they looked pedestrian this week, and and the Rough Riders took advantage of that and knocked Dane Evans around pretty badly. Part of the uh, Hamilton offensive line is now in Ottawa. When you lose your center, it's going to matter. That's the quarterback of that offensive line. They also lost Kyle Saxelid partway through that game. Uh, Just uh, stepped on the turf, awkward angle, and looks like he injured his knee. That's a ratio buster that's gone. Hamilton could be in a little bit of trouble. I mean, you could ask reasonably, did they keep the wrong quarterback? That could be when you've got a a quarterback controversy over the last couple of seasons, and you compare the numbers, 380 yards for Jeremiah Mazzoli, 222 for Dane Evans, a couple of interceptions. We'll see how their seasons continue to progress. But right now, Mazzoli definitely had the better start of those two Hamilton quarterbacks. Hamilton hardly rushed the football at all during the game. And this is a Tommy Condell feature where some argue he's a disciple of Kent Austin, that it's pass first, run second. Well, it was definitely pass first, run second throughout the day. 26 yards rushing total for Hamilton over the course of that game. They abandoned the running game, or did they even really get one started? 11 carries. You're not going to scare anybody with only 11 carries. The Rough Riders on the other side had 24 carries. Now, half of those almost were the quarterback. Jamar Morrow had nine carries. But again, running seemed to be just an absolute 
premium because even Morrow only had 14 yards in carries. Cody Fajardo did it with his legs again as much as he does with his arm. He is a very opportune rushing quarterback. He finds the right time to tuck it and run. And 10 carries for 42 yards. He had one 15-yard carry. He seems to know when it's necessary for him to, to drop it down and run with it. Fajardo threw for 61 yards in the first half, goes off for 250 in the second half, and I would say the majority of those were in the fourth quarter. In a 20-second time period, the Ticats score, the Rough Riders come back with two of their own, and what was a very field goal-heavy game suddenly now has turned into a 30-13 to lead for the Rough Riders in very short order. I think it shell-shocked Hamilton because... Saskatchewan scores, and then Hamilton immediately throws a pick that sets the Riders up at the Hamilton one-yard line. I was a little bit surprised by how quiet Duke Williams was in this game. Five catches, 58 yards. I I thought the offense was really going to key on him this year, and we certainly didn't see it in game number one. Shaq Evans had four catches for 92 yards. One of the things that I heard that I thought was quite interesting is that if they stack the two of them together, that defenses then get into a bind as to which way you're supposed to go. Each one is a threat to catch the ball on any play. And if Williams or Evans breaks in or out, you have to make quick adjustments, especially if you're playing in a zone defense. Who do you want to key on out of the two? That's a, that's a great point. Chuck Evans was targeted 10 times, only did come down with four catches, but 92 yards and a 41-yard catch was his biggest play of the game. Kean Schaefer-Baker had a big touchdown for the Rough Riders, a great catch in the corner of the end zone. He gets four for 32 yards in total. The Rough Riders' defense dominated in a way that I didn't think would be possible. I thought Hamilton would come into that game with Evans and his intensity and his excitement and his enthusiasm that he would really stretch this Rough Rider defense, but it just looked to me like they were out of sorts. Hamilton just couldn't get going on offense. And when you've got linebackers blitzing you all the time, which is a Jason Shiver's specialty, they didn't seem to have answers for it. They kept flipping the, the uh, backs out of the backfield. Well, that doesn't help you if you've got seven guys coming and only five blocking. It was a great game plan by the Rough Riders and their defense, and they executed Eight sacks is a big, big night already. And to hold a team to 26 yards rushing, they did everything necessary to pull this one out. Dane Evans was 18 of 28 for 222. Not bad numbers, but one touchdown and two picks. Final game of the weekend was, I would say, minimally a stunner and maximally a head shaker. BC Lions in front of the biggest crowd that they've had in a long time. 34,082. Take your adjective that you want to apply here. Annihilate (laughs) is the only one that I can come up with immediately. The Edmonton Elks, 59 to 15. It's the most points scored by a team on opening night in CFL history. It's the second most lopsided loss in Edmonton history. There's a lot of storylines. Nathan Rourke, five scores that he was personally involved in, 
three touchdown passes, two running. James Butler gets a career night, four touchdowns, four successive drives. It's safe to say that Nathan Rourke has arrived. 26 for 29, 282 yards, three touchdowns, one more completion, and he wouldn't have just had the best completion percentage of a Canadian quarterback. He'd been right up there in CFL history for completion percentage in a game. What a first half for Nathan Rourke and James Butler. Four touchdowns for Butler, a fantasy darling if anybody had picked him up. It was a a night to remember for those BC Lions. 42 to 6 at halftime. You could almost put it on Carew's control after that, but the Lions didn't. The Elks put up a little bit of a fight, scored in the third quarter, but the Lions said that's enough and we'll just kindly walk away with this, and they scored another late touchdown to wrap it up. Arbuckle was successfully moving the ball. He was finding receivers. James Wilder had a couple of nice runs, and then Nick Arbuckle would throw an interception. The next possession and something similar would happen. They would seem like they've got some momentum. They're making some plays and then an interception would happen. So a rough night for Nick Arbuckle. I don't think he looked bad out there. Some of the results were bad. TJ Lee had two of those interceptions. Gary Peters one and Lucha's Purifoy another. And that was off of Trey Ford who got some playing time in the second quarter. Edmonton has a long season still ahead of them there's still 17 games left it was great to see trey ford get a little bit of playing time yes he only completed one pass but a raw rookie he has now completed a pass in the cfl he did rush the ball a couple of times as well it appears nick arbuckle is still the go-to starting quarterback for the time being in edmonton but i wouldn't be surprised to see them work trey ford into that offense a little bit more on the other side Lucky Whitehead picked up right where he left off last year. Six catches, 110 yards. Brian Burnham targeted four times, caught all four balls. Hardly anybody dropped a pass for the BC Lions, let's be realistic. But it was a a good solid night for that receiving core. And I believe it's one of the best receiving cores in the league. The 59 points that Edmonton gave up was the most that that team had ever given up in a football game. The worst they've ever been beaten was in 1964 on August 28th in Edmonton when the Rough Riders came to town and beat them 56-8. to That's a long time ago. I mention this because it's a Chris Jones defense. If there's one thing that this man is noted for, it's his high-energy, very efficient defenses. They're going to have a lot of film to review this week, especially on that defensive side. I guess the bright spot for the Edmonton Elks was they lost Sean White to free agency, signed with the BC Lions. They picked up Sergio Castillo from Winnipeg, and he had a perfect night on his on his field goals and was kind of the, the offensive star for the Edmonton Elks. BC racked up 469 yards of offense and scored 59 points. Ottawa goes for 441 yards of offense and only scores 17. Fascinating. (laughs) That's a great stat. And then, as I said, that kind of shows that Winnipeg style of they're not afraid to give up some yards. They don't want to get beat on the big plays like we saw with, with Winston Rose. However, they seem to be able to step up at the right times to prevent that other team from getting points. Edmonton 
was not in that same caliber this time around against BC. Third down. Week two is now upon us in the Canadian Football League. Some intriguing, some intriguing matchups coming up. I think in terms of trying to figure out who's going to win, it's probably one of the tougher weeks that we may face all season. So many games, even though you think X is going to happen, it may not. Game number one, the Montreal Alouettes in Toronto Thursday night. This is the season opener for the Toronto Argonauts. They had the week off in week number one. We will see McLeod Bethel-Thompson and Andrew Harris hitting the field for the first time together for the Argonauts. The Argos are going to be without Juwan Breskison and Eric Rogers, both put on the sixth game. Huge possession receivers. That's going to limit them. I'm very curious to see how Harris performs. I, I've been looking forward to this probably more than anything. I want to I want to know from my own sort of sense of what's going to happen this year, how much of a chip he has on his shoulder. And did Winnipeg send him packing a year too early? That is the, the big question mark. With this game, one thing that stands out to me is Vernon Adams Jr., you just don't know with him, is he going to have a, a night where he's throwing three interceptions or is he going to throw for 380 yards, three or four touchdowns and scamper for another 75 yards? That's the kind of unpredictability that Vernon Adams can bring to a game. And it's a, a big night and we'll see what Toronto has to start the season. As you mentioned, two key receivers on that six game injured reserve list. So they're off to a tough start before even hitting the field. Toronto in their last five with McLeod Bethel-Thompson as their starter are one and four. Vernon Adams going the other way is two and one against the Argonauts in his three starts. Toronto does not start a season well. They have a very poor opening night record. Given how well Montreal played in Calgary, I think there's going to be some fire in the Alouettes. Remember too, last year... The Alouettes at home were kind of middling, but on the road, they were far, far better. Is it because the pressure's off? Montreal can pull this off and not only beat the spread, but win the football game. The Argonauts are minus 3.5 favorites. I'm picking the Alouettes to not only beat the spread, but win the game. Montreal, to me, is always that Jekyll and Hyde team. As I said, Vernon Adams Jr. is that Jekyll and Hyde quarterback. Which version of him are we going to see? That's why I picked the Alouettes to be 9-9 nine and nine this season. I think they're a win-one-lose-one kind of team that's not going to string together long winning streaks or long losing streaks. That being said, I am picking the Argonauts to win the season opener in this one, and they will cover the spread. Pat, not available to be with us tonight, and he is picking Toronto to cover. Game 2. Winnipeg and Ottawa, the rematch, this time in the nation's capital. Winnipeg started the week at minus 6.5. It has whittled its way down to minus 2.5 as we record here on Wednesday night. Bombers are still the favored team. I got a lot of question marks. Number one, how healthy is Zach Galaris? Number two, 
are they going to be ready to play a very amped up Ottawa team at home? I believe we're going to see a much improved Winnipeg Blue Bombers team from game one. I think they had a lot of that emotional energy with the banner unveiling home opener as the defending champions, a lot of hype to it. They did pull out a very dramatic and emotional win at the end of that game. We saw Drew Brown come in in relief of Zach Caleras, put together a successful winning drive. And I think that has boosted the confidence of Winnipeg a little bit. I expect the defense to step up. They did put some pressure on Jeremiah Mazzoli. They didn't get to him. They had him scrambling and they need to work on that containment a little bit. We also saw Jackson Jeffcoat absent in week one with an injury. It looks like he's going to be in the lineup week for week two here. So I'm expecting a lot of improvement from Winnipeg. But as we said, and Paul Apolli said, they have Jeremiah Mazzoli. They have a chance. I said this last year, and I will say it again, and I think it bears repeating. I do not fear Winnipeg's offense. There isn't a weapon on that receiving core that you go, wow, this guy, you got a double team. There is nobody. That is why I believe Ottawa can and most likely will win at home. The Red Blacks went out of their way to improve this last season. They did it everywhere. They pulled together a lot of great veteran players to make this team far better. And even last year, all the struggles that they had, they weren't that far behind everybody else, despite the fact that they would only win three games. Ottawa is much improved. That's a, that's a fact. I can't debate you on that one at all. Winnipeg's offense, though not flashy, is efficient. And if the defense starts to step up, I mean, they did, they did only give up 17 points in week number one, which is a pretty good defensive effort. I think they start winning that takeaway game, getting some more sacks, and that can change the momentum. Then you've got that offense starting with a shorter field, and that's how Winnipeg kind of pulls out these wins. It's almost a death by a thousand cuts. They don't have the flashy 70-yard bomb that is going to run up the score and, and have a quick hit. They just chip away and they do what they need to do. The running game didn't really develop in week number one either. I would like to see them trade off between Brady Oliveira and Johnny Augustine a little bit more than they do. They seem to have anointed Oliveira as their go-to number one running back, but Augustine brings a little bit of a different look to things and you start to mix that up and that can confuse the other defense a little bit and help you establish that running game. They don't have the power back that Andrew Harris was and we'll see if he continues to be. So they need to rethink how they run the ball. Andrew Harris at times was 30 to 40% of that offense. That is a massive hole to replace. Kenny Lawler was another 20% of that offense. He's gone. Darvin Adams, he's gone. Winnipeg has lost a lot of talented players on offense. It's going to eventually bite them. It may not just yet, but at some point, you cannot lose that much quality and expect to be the exact same team you were. You have to take a step back. And I think Ottawa is going to be poised to do this. They want to change the narrative about this team. And if they want to be in the conversation for the playoffs, 
one way to do it is to knock off the defending Grey Cup champions. My prediction is they don't quite get there this season as far as head-to-head against Winnipeg. So I'm picking Winnipeg to win and to cover the spread. I think that last week was a big wake-up call for the Bombers. And this is their chance to prove that they are still the best team in the league. Pat is agreeing with you. He's going with Winnipeg and the cover. I'm going the exact opposite. I'm taking Ottawa to win at home and throwing that cover right out the window. (laughs) Third game, probably the most intriguing game given what happened last week. The Calgary Stampeders are in Hamilton to play the Tiger Cats. Intriguing in the sense that how healthy is Bo Levi Mitchell? And is Hamilton's offense really that bad? This is, there's, there's always that game that you go back and forth and, and have a hard time deciding who's going to win that one. And for me this week, this is that game. I've kind of gone back and forth a little bit. Right now, I'm, I'm leaning Calgary. I'm hoping Bo Levi Mitchell is healthy enough to go. We know Jake Mayer is a capable backup. So him coming into the game isn't going to really change things up too much for the Calgary Stampeders. I, I think their offense keeps rolling. This game is as close to a pick as you can get. Hamilton favored by negative 0.5. That is a toss-up. Typically in this type of scenario, the home team gets three points because they're the home team. It doesn't matter how well they played. So that means that Calgary's clawed back two and a half of those three points, but they just don't know that they're better than the Cats on the road, so that's why they're not the favorites. And the question mark, I'm sure, in the betting public's mind is Bolivar Mitchell. How bad is that ankle? He, he has not looked fantastic, but he is their leader. I'm going with the Tiger Cats to cover the spread, as is Pat. And I'm taking Calgary. This is my upset of the week. I'm picking Calgary to win this one outright. I mean, it's a half point spread. So (laughs) one way or the other, the spread isn't really going to come into play. It's who's going to win this game. And I'm picking the Calgary Stampeders. The second half of the doubleheader on Saturday is the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in Commonwealth to take on the Edmonton Elks. Saskatchewan goes into the game at... Minus 7.5 favorites. I cannot remember the last time the Rough Riders were ever that big a favorite, A, on the road, and B, in Edmonton. I think you'd have to go back to 1976 when they took them out 40 to nothing and then 34 to 7 in successive weeks. Saskatchewan took a long time to get that offense going, but that defense showed well against Hamilton. Edmonton... Offense was okay. Defense was ripped. In the universe of Chris Jones, it's just a matter of time until they get it sorted out. And if you remember, the first season he coached the Rough Riders, 3-15. and 15. They started 1-10. His whole career here, he was 27-27 and 27 in Saskatchewan. That means he was 26-17 and, and 17 thereafter. The debate coming out of week one was... Is BC that good or is Edmonton that bad? And this is going to answer the, is Edmonton that bad this week? We'll see a a true test again with Cody Fajardo and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders offense against that Elks defense. I honestly don't think the Elks are that bad. I, I believe week one was a bit of an anomaly. 
You never know how a team is going to come out to start the season. It's what you do after that first week that matters. Offensively, as I said, Nick Arbuckle had some flashes in that first game. I feel confident in in him as the starter. It's going to be a lot closer than a touchdown. I think the Rough Riders do pull out the win in this one, but it's going to be a four or five point game as opposed opposed to an eight or 10 point victory. Saskatchewan, this is what they would call a trap game. You're facing a team that just had it handed to them. You come off a victory. You may look past them and think about the Montreal game that you have coming up. The critical issue for coaching staff is to get your focus on that team. They wouldn't be in the CFL if they weren't good. You better respect them and play like it matters. And if the Rough Riders do that, then they'll win. But with you, I agree. I can't go with that 7.5 spread. So I'm going to pick the Rough Riders, but they will not cover. Pat has taken the Rough Riders and the cover. Interesting. I, I think one of the most disappointing things coming into week two here is that the BC Lions are the team that that pull the draw. We saw Nathan Rourke do some amazing things on the football field with that offense, and now they sit and they watch this week. So a little bit of a disappointment there, but looking forward to seeing them in week three and moving forward to answer that question of, is BC that good? Let's give a shout out to Amar Daman for all of the uh, inventive and creative ideas he brought forward to get that crowd into BC. And the fact that they opened the upper upper bowl in BC place was huge. You're right, a tip of the hat. It was great to see some new thinking in the CFL and how we draw a crowd. The One Republic concert was a draw for maybe some casual football fans that got to see a concert that they would like to see and then hung around for a game. It brought some younger fans in, which is a huge part of what the league needs to be successful is how how can they win new fans to the game. This was a great way to do it. So hats off. I, I know we've talked about this before between BC and, and Victor Quee in Edmonton. There's some new passion and energy and some new thinking in how we go about marketing this game. There was a lot of discussion about best practices being shared. Well, there's a lot of good ideas coming out of BC and Edmonton lately. Congrats to BC on a great opening night show. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again at the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching.